0: Hey, what's up? It's Gustavo Ariano. And today, we're turning over the mic to one of my awesome LA Times colleagues. Erin Logan covers national politics the D.C. Bureau and brings us a story of a family's heirloom and how it made its way to the Smithsonian.
1: When I was in grade school, I envied my classmates who would go on tangents about their family tree. Their ancestors came to America from Europe, Asia, and other places around the world. They had pictures and birth records and family heirlooms. All I could offer is that I came from sharecroppers in the Deep South, and they were enslaved on plantations in Mississippi and Alabama. And then before that, they came to America in shackles and on slave ships. Beyond that, I don't know their names or even where in Africa they came from. It's all a black hole. That's a common experience for the descendants of enslaved Americans like me. Our family history was taken from us, through kidnapping, family separation, and violence. So when I learned about the story of the Diggs family, I was intrigued. This is their journey. We are walking through the lobby. It's very fun, very clean, clear. In April, I met Denise Diggs at the Smithsonian National Museum of African American History and Culture in Washington, D.C.
0: she said, follow her?
1: Oh.
2: oh. She didn't tell she me said,
1: that. She said wait here. I don't know. We were in search of her family's artifact. <laughs> but
2: this shirt
0: is our family bible that's in the basement. It's in the slavery section. Really? Yeah. yeah, yeah. That's, why we're, that's here. why we're here with her. She's a reporter. Hello. Hi. <laughs>
1: Denise, a retired civilian jail manager from San Bernardino, was on a mission to find a Bible once owned by her family's patriarch. His name is Richard Collins. He was born into slavery in 1844 in Alabama. The Diggs family donated the Bible to the Smithsonian Institute in 2014. Archivists deemed it an object of historical significance. It's now part of an exhibit humanizing the experiences of enslaved people. And the importance faith played in their lives. Denise proudly told other tourists why we were at the museum. So when they did the they did an open call, you guys gave it to them? Yes. Yes. That oh, was so good. Yes. It was amazing you still had
0: it. Yes. It was bought it was purchased in eighteen sixty nine. So yes. My mother had it.
1: We are getting off the elevator. We walked into the exhibit and began weaving in and out of visitors. Excuse me. We saw remnants of a slave ship, a wrought iron slave collar, and a towering six-foot statue of President Thomas Jefferson standing in front of a wall, stacked bricks, memorializing the hundreds of humans he owned. On the other side of the wall, so okay. you gotta go. Wave. A few steps down the hall, we found what we were looking for. But our reckon inside just told us about God. We heard recordings explaining how enslaved people lived. We saw the instruments used by a white doctor who used Black women's bodies for medical experiments.
0: Oh, look. That looks fantastic. That's
1: when we saw the Collins Family Bible. It was open to the Book of Exodus, which recounts the story of Hebrew slaves in Egypt and how they escaped. Oh my goodness. How are it's you incredible. feeling? Uh, excited and You're nervous. Yeah. yeah. I knew that I was,
0: gonna was going to feel something. Maybe even a little emotional. She have no cause for okay. I'm fine. So I think I would cry. <laughs> I'm usually tougher than that. But anyway. It's okay. you.
1: The Diggs family first came across the Bible in the late 1980s. It was Denise's sister-in-law, Carlotta, who foraged through the cardboard box of books, earmarked for charity, looking for something to read. Halfway into the pile, she found a dusty and worn Bible. So I went back there and I pulled up a chair and I'm going through all of these books. And then I see this one that says, Holy Bible. So I open it up, and as I'm thumbing through the pages, I start noticing all of these names and dates and births and marriages, and I'm like, wait a minute, this is something that we really need to take a look at. The notes said things like Richard Collins Jr., born in Dallas County, Alabama, and Virginia J. Collins to Morgan T. White, August 24, 1892. So it's not like, you know, the 1950s or 40s,
0: where someone was just writing in a Bible. This is slavery dates that I was looking at. So I was like, amazed,
1: amazed. Like I said, it just hit me. Carlotta showed the Bible to her mother-in-law, Natalie Dix, who said it had belonged to Richard Collins, her grandfather. When Natalie inspected the notes, she recognized the names of her father and his siblings. Natalie spent the next couple of decades using the Bible's notes as a guide in an effort to build her family tree. But she hadn't made much progress by the time she died in 2005. Other members of the family then picked up the search, led by one of her sons, Richard. The story of how they picked up the missing pieces is coming after this break. This is my mother and her seven sisters. Wow. Six sisters. There were seven girls. This is Joanne. In late April, I traveled to California's San Bernardino County where I met Denise Diggs and her brother Richard. Since their mother Natalie's death, Richard has taken the role in deciphering the ancestral clues left in his great grandfather's Bible. I asked him how he felt when he first read the notes and markings left in the Bible.
0: At first, it was just kind of shocking. A part of me was, like, so glad that we could find something that attached us to the history of our family. But curious. I have a little bit of an investigative mind. Law enforcement for 30 years.
1: Richard said he spent years trying to match family rumors with his great-grandfather's notes. A clear vision of his great-grandfather started coming to life.
0: If he walked in this room today, I'd know him. I'd know him by his demeanor. I'd know him by his speech. I'd know him because... I know so much about him and what's happened to him.
1: But it wasn't always easy. The Bible contained names and dates and markings on certain passages. Some of it was clear-cut, but some of it was confusing, leading Richard to wonder, what was going through his ancestor's mind?
0: So, like, this is Mark, this is Matthew, right? 19 and 20, he he puts a mark there. Uh, And I'm like, why did he put that mark there? What was he thinking when he did that? And then...
1: Sometimes, the head-scratching led to some pretty amusing discoveries.
0: For years, I kept looking at this going, what the heck is this? A bunch of scribbling. Then I realized when you turn it upside down, it was Hattie, his second little daughter, Hattie Collins. She was practicing her H's on that page.
1: Richard Dix kept at it. His research led him to believe that Richard Collinson's grandmother lived as a free woman in Georgia before she and her daughter were kidnapped in 1818 and sold into slavery on an Alabama plantation. Collins wrote in the Bible that he was born in 1844, into slavery on a plantation, and that at 16, he had a son out of wedlock. Diggs believes that his ancestor escaped slavery and enlisted in the Union Army. After the Confederacy fell, Collins married and reunited with his mother and grandmother in Alabama. When the Union Army ended its occupation of the South and unchecked white supremacist violence became more pervasive in Alabama, Collins fled to Texas where he had more children and accumulated some wealth and became a cryptic Mason. At some point, he moved to Southern California and later died there in 1918. He is buried in San Diego. Despite all of this digging, Richard Diggs still has a lot of unanswered questions.
0: You know, why did he wind up in Texas? And why did he come to California? And then when he got to California, why did he spend some time in Bakersfield, some time in Imperial Valley, some time in San Diego? What was going on?
1: Yet, despite all the missing parts, historians say the family's ability to piece together their family tree is rare. Records before 1870 are scarce. African-Americans are often left with little to no knowledge of their ancestors' origins or how they lived.
2: It is not particularly common for African-American families to find artifacts that are from the enslaved era.
1: That's Brenda Stevenson, a historian at the University of California, Los Angeles.
2: Most of those documents that describe in some kind of way their lives or their family and their family membership were actually produced by those persons who called them their slaves, who might have recorded the birth dates, the names, the parents, sometimes of their what they considered their enslaved property.
1: Stevenson told me that enslaved people in this ethnic group were deemed property in much of the country until the end of the civil war in eighteen sixty-five. She said that the federal government did not include their names in the census until 1870. That lack of documentation and other races' policies yielded empty branches on family trees. And that's what made the Diggs Family Bible so rare. Richard Collins had documented five generations of births, deaths, and marriages. His neat script provided the clues necessary for his ancestors to trace their lineage back to the shores of Africa a rare feat for most African Americans.
2: Most people can probably find with a lot of hard work links to the last generations of persons who were enslaved. Those people who could get to the point of those three or four generations before emancipation, those are very, very blessed and lucky people because it's very hard to do so. Unless they all remain in the same area, Unless the people who claimed them as their slaves kept copious records, and those records have now been placed in the archive, it's, it's very, very difficult to do so.
1: There was another factor in the Diggs family Bible that made its existence even more remarkable. How did the senior Richard Collins learn to read and write?
2: It was against the law for most enslaved Black people to be able to read or to write.
1: According to Stevenson, literacy among enslaved people was outlawed throughout much of the Deep South after Nat Turner's failed rebellion in 1831. By some estimates, just 10% of enslaved people were literate. So the Diggs family was lucky to have so much information because of the notes left behind in the Bible. But eventually, Richard hit a dead end.
0: so this is what they told me.
1: Richard Diggs turned to modern technology.
0: That I have a paternal, ancient paternal lineage with Pharaoh Ramses III.
1: He took a DNA test.
0: E-V38. Don't ask me what that is.
1: What he found astonished him. Nearly 13% of Diggs's DNA hails from the Congo and Angola. The first Africans who landed in Jamestown in 1619 were indentured servants from Angola, and he thinks his ancestors were among them.
0: And there are other things that kind of support that, by the way. Okay, Okay. so so now we're in America 1619. Okay. These Mbundu people are not put into a slave system because there's no child slavery in colonial law at the time in 1619. That came much later.
1: Whereas African-Americans are descended from Africans who were kidnapped and sold into slavery before making a gory trip across the Atlantic Ocean, Diggs's ancestors may have come to America as indentured servants.
0: A couple of things identify my family in the Virginia area, so let me get to that.
1: Diggs also found out his grandfather's surname was in the minutes of an 1813 church meeting that mentions the descendants of these former servants.
0: The Collins family was identified with three other families, the Gibsons, the Sextons, and the Boylins.
1: Do you know whether or not they were enslaved
0: or free? They're free. Because okay. they moved away from the area.
1: Richard Dix thinks his great grandfather is a good example of the untold stories of American slavery.
0: They would tell you we were all ignorant, we didn't read, we didn't write, we didn't know anything, we weren't smart, we weren't all these things. He's the total opposite of all those things. And yet he was right in the middle of slavery.
1: More after the break. By 2014, the Diggs family had exhausted their research. That's when Denise Diggs saw a new segment about the Smithsonian Institution's newest museum, asking for African-American artifacts, and the family decided to donate their Bible. Richard Diggs flew with the Bible from California to Washington, D.C., where he gave it to a curator who examined the book. It took about one year for the curator to confirm its authenticity. Instead, the Bible was printed in 1869. During that D.C. trip, Richard also performed a poem he wrote about his journey to uncover his ancestry.
0: I was this precocious little kid, you know the one, who thought life was just carefree. I never, ever dreamed that through a twist of fate, I'd write a family tree.
1: The Bible was put on display in 2016, shortly after the museum opened its doors. Richard Dick still hasn't seen the Bible on display, but his sister Denise has. She says it was worth the wait. For me, not having children,
0: I always wonder about, you know, who will remember me once I go. Now it feels like our story will live on.
1: At the display, Denise noticed that most of the tourists around her were white. She wondered if they could fully appreciate her ancestors' accomplishment. I wonder if
0: they feel the significance of what a slave being able to do this means. Or is this their first introduction into the idea of what slaves' lives were like? Like, is this something they've never thought about
1: until they've experienced this exhibit? Reporting the story made me really happy that an African-American family was able to uncover so much about their family history. It made me wonder if there was anything sitting in my parents' attic that could help me cobble together a family tree.
0: The South? still holds so many stories in all those unmarked graves. And we've heard our old folks talk about stories from way back when. It's of these memories the record and the history of our people does depend.
1: The Diggs family insists that though their ancestor was born into slavery, they would never remember him as a slave.
0: I know the reason now why my great-grandpa chose me. He knew I would not stop until I finished the Collins tree. And my great-grandpa, well, he'd be proud, knowing I have done my best, and the history of the Collins name can now be put to rest. Great-grandpa's Bible has been in the possession of only three men in our family tree. My great-grandfather, Richard, my grandfather, Richard, and finally the last Richard, me. So the circle of life of my great-grandfather has arced its way around to me. And with God's grace, for as long as I live, I'll tell the history of the Collins family tree. And that's it for this episode of The Times, daily news from the L.A. Times. Shannon Lynn was a hef on this episode, and our show is produced by Shannon Lynn, Denise Guerra, Kasha Brasalian, Ashley Brown, and David Toledo. Our editorial assistant is Madeline Amato. Our intern is Surya Hendry. Our engineers are Mario Diaz, Mark Nieto, and Mike Heflin, and our editor is Kinsey Moreland. Our executive producers are Hasmin Aguilera and Shawnee Hilton, and our theme music is by Andrew Eaton. Special thanks on this one to Steve Padilla and Del Wilder. And guess what? The bosses want more feedback. So take a minute and go to LATimes.com/slash podcast and answer a few questions for us. Let us know what you like, what you don't like. All that stuff that keeps us from being the Puccia podcast, you know? I'm Gustavo Ariano. We'll be back tomorrow with all the news in this Desmadre. Gracias.